Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Well, good morning, everyone. You're tuned to Community Radio 3CR. Time is just after 7.30. And, of course, you're listening to the 3CR Gardening Show. My name's Pam Vardy. First up, we have to welcome back A.B. Bishop. Morning, A.B. Oh, good morning, Pam. I see we're still festooned with festivities and things in here. Still uh, Leftover Radiothon. Leftover Radiothon and uh, still trying to collect money. Certainly are. Yes. yes. Still trying to get the, the dregs to get us up to target. Yes, yes. How, how short are we? Um, we're not, not too, too bad. Yeah. No, we've, we've actually made it up to 11,690 odd, which is a fantastic insane. effort. Yeah. But, um, we do have to get to 13,500. And of course, we do still have, um, leftover products, mm-hmm. leftover books, mm-hmm. uh, leftover vouchers. Beautiful. Lots of things still happening. So if anyone wants to ring up and, uh, grab some of these yeah. while they're still here. Oh, so they can still talk to Doug and do that or to ring up during the no, week? No, ring maybe? up, ring yeah, up during, the during week. office hours. Yeah, yeah talk yeah. to one of the staff members. That's yeah. the easiest and they can they can help you along. Yeah, well, it was such a good morning, wasn't it? It was terrific and um, I've still got to pick up some goodies. I've still oh, got you go. $70 worth of goodies to pick up. So oh, wow. I'll be, I'll be doing that, but yeah, terrific, terrific to be in. Fantastic. <laughs> okay. We also have to say a very good morning to James Beatty and James is not only a horse Horticulturist. Get that right, Pam. Yeah. (laughs) It's because because I'm very excited to announce he's also an owner of Horticology Gardens by Design. Yes, that's my business I've been running for a a little while now, and um, I thought it was high time that I was introduced to such a Yeah, it is high time. Yes. Good morning to everyone out there in Radio Land as well. I like Um, the name Horticology. Well, I came up with the idea because I kind of hit on this, this. this idea that that what I do is it's gardening, but it's also ecology, mm. and yes. and all you know all good gardeners worth their salt. You kind of you know going between the boundaries of those two things all exactly. the time. And I thought, well, why don't I just be a complete philistine and combine the two <laughs> and create a new word? And so yeah, there you have it. Horticology. Well, that's great. <laughs> it is good, and you can follow James on um, on Instagram under Horticology and see yeah. who all his amazing designs. The Horticologist. The, the underscore horticologist. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. you. Yeah. You show all your um, designs that you do for people, and yeah, and, and absolutely. Yeah, and the, the real thing that I like is you show you don't just show the finished product. You mm-hmm. show when you're maintaining it, when you're pulling stuff out, and you yep. explain along the way. So it's really good information for people to see the structure of beds and stuff. So you, you're getting There's photos something. of lots of flowers and photos yep. of lots of piles of poo as yeah. well. In equal <laughs> measure. Yeah, Always good to have photos gardening. of poo. Oh, you, yeah. can't, you can't have the colour without the brown. No, no exactly. Intimately. Related. Yeah, that, that's right. <laughs> but it means you've got great um, soil because well, you're building right. it up. It all starts there. Really. That's where it you has know? to start. Yeah. yeah. People dig a hole in the ground. That when when we were working for Gardening Australia, there was a there was a um, story. There was this lady who said that you know people would dig a hole that a cat would be ashamed of, <laughs> and, then, and then put a plant in it and wonder why it doesn't grow. And I think well, you're going to improve your soil and things first a lot of the time. You know, yes. where success builds from. So yeah, so important. true. I remember when I uh, studied horticulture, I was absolutely entranced by soil. 
I actually think I should have been a a geologist or something. Um, It just captivated me so much. And um, after I finished the course, I thought, oh, I'm going to um, conduct, I'm going to be a soil consultant and conduct soil tests. And I made up a thousand flyers and distributed them uh, around the neighbourhood, which essentially meant taking them to uh, post office boxes because there's no uh, letterboxes near us. And I took them to Hurstbridge and Diamond Creek and Kangaroo Ground, distributed a thousand flyers. Um, let me come to your garden and do a soil consultation. And I had one phone call. Mm. <laughs> and even then, she just wanted to know what some of the weeds were. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, damn, nobody wants to know what there's, what's in their soil. And that is the absolute, the starting point of a exactly. fabulous garden. Exactly. Just get to know your soil. Get out there with a fork, dig around, get your hands dirty, squish the soil and, mm. and pour a bucket of water in a hole and see how quickly or, or not that it drains. And I mean, the more we get to know our soil, the essentially, the better our garden is going to be. So we're not fighting the, the one of the main elements of the gardening. That's right. And you know that... what? I, sorry, James. No, you go. Um, you know what I think hasn't helped? For, for ages there on television, we had all of these sort of instant garden creations mm. and nobody ever talked about soil on them. They mm. were madly just planning the design and throwing all the plants in and, mm. and Bob's your uncle, it's all done and the owners would come back easy. and go, wow, <laughs> yeah. you know, instant garden. Yeah. And I don't mm. think that's helped anybody. No. I think it's boring too. Well, like, it is. It's a journey, isn't it? it yeah. It's a lifelong journey, not only creating the garden but getting getting to know plants mm. and, and, and getting to know your soil. And had this lovely customer come in uh, uh, to work yesterday at Karanga and um, she was starting to develop a bee-friendly garden in right. memory of a um, young boy that had passed away on International Bee Day. Oh. So she was really new to gardening mm. and getting to know the different plants and everything. And, and we were just talking about how it's going to be this incredible journey of discovery for her, just learning slowly about the plants. And, I mean, the thing is, you think of people like Angus Stewart and Stephen Ryan, even they're still learning. And look at how much knowledge they've got. Mm. That's right. You know, and, and like sometimes I think, oh, my goodness, the more I know, know and learn, the more I realise what I that don't, you don't know. know. <laughs> yes. And it's kind of sometimes... We're all the same. Yeah, there. sometimes <laughs> it's super scary. And you, I sort of wander around the nursery and I'm like, how come I didn't know about this group mm. of plants or this group of plants? And yet it's all that discovery and, and slowly over time you learn more and what plants can go where. And, and, and that's what I find so fantastic about uh, working in the nursery. You know, don't tell Evan, but I really would work there for nothing. <laughs> <laughs> no, we won't tell don't him. Don't tell him. <laughs> uh, you know, because you you're always, always learning. And, and customers that come in, you know, so many of them have got this incredible knowledge base. Mm. Um, you know, Shirley Khan, who comes in really frequently, mm. and, um, you know, Sandra McMahon and lots of other people, and they come <laughs> in and, and, you know, you, you can wander around with them and they'll talk to you about the plants and what they've done in their garden. So, mm. it's, yeah, it's really wonderful. Fantastic. And I presume you're still uh, giving talks about your book? <laughs> yes, it, it actually hasn't stopped. It's been quite incredible. Um, yeah, I think had about 20, well, 20 so, you know, for the, for the year um, altogether. So I've done, yeah, a, a good many presentations. And what is I find is terrific is a lot of them are linking in with uh, Council's Garden for Wildlife Oh, um, great. Prog- um, programs that they've got going. A lot of councils are launching those programs and, you know, I'll go along and, and do a sort of supplementary presentation. And um, it's exciting because 
they they seem to the audiences are getting bigger and bigger and bigger, mm. and which you know all that says to me is that people really want to create gardens that support and protect uh, native critters. And it's the middle of winter, so once we actually get into warm weather, expect the crowds to swell even more. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it is. It's quite incredible. So yes, lots of lots of presentations about habitat, which is that's, which that's is wonderful. That's yeah. really encouraging. It is, and lots of people coming into the nursery. Actually, Evan and I were talking yesterday. We need to do a little um, pamphlet. We've got lots of pamphlets in there for people to take away and we need to do one on native bees because more and more people are coming in mm. and they're buying the bee um, hotels, oh, the right. insect hotels yes. that we've got and wanting to know what plants can I plant that will attract the bees and mm. so it's, uh, it's definitely spreading and people are realising, you know, in Australia we've got over 2,000 species of native bees. Mm. And uh, they keep discovering more, damn them. So my book's out of date already. <laughs> <laughs> that always happens when you write a book, oh, eh, so Frustrating, isn't it? It's like, yeah, 1,600 plus. <laughs> well, of course, don't forget that the botanists are doing their darndest to make any plant you write about out of date with its name. So. Kills you. True. Yeah, <laughs> it's, just, it's so frustrating. But the way I look at it is if, if you just at least remember, I mean, Callistamon, Melaleuca, all the, you know, Alocasiurina and Cassiurina, who knows where they are. But, uh, yeah, try and keep up to date as much as you can. James is very good at keeping up to date with plants. Like when I was writing my book, I sent, <laughs> sent a few sections through to him and he was like, oh, this one's had a name change. This one's had a name change. I was like, oops, <laughs> lucky you read it. Thank you. It was, it was the grasses section and they are they oh. they continue to go through revision at a pretty rapid rate as well. Yeah. And they're just yeah mind-boggling really and, yeah. and frustrating. But I don't know, there's this thing about pedantry. I don't know, I'm, I'm quite... I don't know. I think, yeah. I think it's that slight Stephen Ryan disease. He's like the <laughs> proudest pedant that I know on the face of the planet when it comes to plants. And thank God for him. Yeah, really. yeah goodness. Exactly. Yes, yes. I agree. Yeah. Is it um, noticeable that, that the grasses are getting so much attention at the moment? Well, a few years ago it was the wallaby grasses that, mm. that got split off from... Um, Ostrodanthonia into another genus. Rutidosperma. Yeah, which yeah. is just so horrible I to know, say. I know, it's annoying. It's really annoying. <laughs> <laughs> at least choose something that rolls off the tongue a bit nicer. I don't know. If it was linguistically a bit more pleasurable to say, I think I'd have less of a problem with it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, as I mean, it's a lot of that research. A lot of, that, a lot of those name changes are happening because there's, there's a lot of... Um, genetic research going on now that you know whereas whereas 50 years ago all of plant taxonomy was based on morphology the actual way plants look and things like that mm, but now yep. that we have genetic analysis um, we we're finding that there's a lot of different relationships between plants that we didn't know before and things that we mm. thought were related weren't and yep. actually deserve to be put in their own category mm. and yep. those things continue to evolve you know apace really mm. um, and will continue to I think yes and, I the, think so. and the same in the animal world as well mm. you know I mean bats for instance you know currently we've got two families we've got the mega chiropter and the microchiropter and, um, you know, megabats and microbats, yeah. but yeah. they're finding that there's actually much more overlap. Oh, is that right? I didn't yeah, know that. Than, well. they, than they originally thought. So they're, they're actually reassessing what categories they're going to put them in and they're going to recategorize bats, essentially. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So interesting. It is very interesting and sort of confusing, but the way I look at it is it's going to, I mean, plants and animals, they're going to continue to change as in their categories, but it's just about getting to know as much as you can in yep. a way. 
I mean, grasses, we know, they're so hard to ID. I mean, yeah, even the experts absolutely. find it really mm. tricky, you know, and I, I love it when um, customers bring in one stalk of a grass <laughs> into what the nursery. This? What is this? It's like, okay. <laughs> and, and then you take them to any random grass and say, this is it, and they think you're an absolute hero. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and who knows? It could have been it. <laughs> and distinguishing between wallaby grass species as well, it's, it's the way the seed looks, you know, oh, okay. and, and yep. the way hairs are arranged on the individual seeds. And, right. You know, the plant habits obviously have a lot to do with it, and if yep. someone can have a photo of the actual plant themselves that they take a stalk off, and hopefully yep. the stalk has the seed on it still, yes, but maybe yeah. it's just the gloom that's left, and that's probably not enough to identify it, yep. you know, with, with 100% accuracy, but... It's a very, very highly specialised and tricky thing, yeah. yeah. And there are very few people who, who can rattle off the top of their head and, and accurately identify a huge range of local grasses mm. yeah. from the Melbourne region. Yeah, 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 yeah absolutely. Yeah. And, I mean, identifying plants generally is, um, is quite a skill in a way, isn't it? And, and oh, when it you is. think about it, all the different things, like, you know, I was talking, I have my cousin Kathy here from South Africa, and we've been exploring, we were down at Phillip Island, and... Um, went to the Koala Conservation Centre and they've got a gorgeous woodland walk through there and um, we were talking about the different trees and looking at things like the bark and the bark on different trees and how some of the bark was in ribbons and some of the bark was quite solid and stuck on the tree so all these little things mm. um, give us if like if people are coming to us to ID a plant mm. they give us a broader mm. picture you know yes. what the overall tree looks like is it really straight and skinny is it really broad mm. what you know what shape are the leaves what uh, color are the flowers and and how do they look and even the you know the little operculums on if you're looking at eucalyptus those little buds that are that are on top of the flowers they're completely individual to each of the whatever 700 odd species of mm. eucalypts and mm. so that's a fantastic way for us to be able to id them so there's lots and lots of information that we can gather when we're looking at a particular plant to, to work out what it is. Mm, that's yes. right. Not just a little blade of grass. Not just a, yeah, yeah. Not just a little <laughs> blade of grass. Yes. <laughs> Bring in as much detail as you can. Exactly. I mean, I love IDing. I love it when people bring in something or they email me or um, got a, a couple of rallies up in New South Wales who re quite regularly text me a, a photo of a plant and say what is this and invariably it's 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 something that's uh, quite commonly grown like it might be a pacros longa flora or something like that which is very easy obviously to identify um, but I love the puzzle of going in and, and you know narrowing it down to a family and then yes. mm. yeah narrowing it down even further so it's mm -hmm. it can be tricky but it, it's a it's a fun puzzle to do I think that's the the one beauty of mobile phones these days. Oh, totally. That's yeah, right. it makes it so easy because you mm. can be walking through a garden anywhere, just quickly take a photo, and yeah. you've got it. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's one phone that's out at the moment. I don't know what it is. It's it's definitely not an iPhone, but you can take a photo of literally any living thing, like any insect or plant, and it will tell you what it is. Really? You're joking? How no. accurate is it? Like most most of the time, it'll get it, it right. Is, it seems to be really accurate. Wow! It's, yeah, okay. it's quite incredible. Yeah, I'm, in fact, I'm surprised the iPhone people haven't picked it up. But uh, yeah, so okay. Uh, but it, that takes away the joy of actually <laughs> learning about the. Yeah, and then we'll all be de-skilled. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> actually, there's a fantastic app that I've joined up with. It. It's called Quest a Game, right. and um, it's a it's sort of almost like based on a game um, and I'm not a gamer so I have a bit of trouble with some of the features but essentially you can upload 
photos of critters, so in, you know whether it be an insect or a frog or a bird, and a, if you don't know what it is, you can say basically I don't know what this is, and a panel of experts will look at it and right. tell you what it is, and then you, if you do know what it is, you, you know you might say oh you know I've got this dainty swallowtail butterfly here, and this is where I took the photo of it, and then still a panel of experts will say yep you're correct that's mm. a dainty swallowtail butterfly, and it goes into their database so you control through the database and see where see, all, other critters. see other critters and it's a worldwide game so it's called quest a game yeah, great. Okay. and it's fantastic it sounds like a user-friendly version of bowerbird.org it is a, it is definitely that's the clunkiest website because oh, that's based on the same idea that's it's right make, it's australian experts you know you can post any any photo of any critter as yep. well or any plant and, right yeah and people that are researchers in australia will identify it if you don't know what it is and they'll tell you all about it but yep. it's 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 a very clumsily put together website. Mm. Yeah, it's not yeah. very easy to use. That's but this right. sounds much it's, easier. It, it is. Well, it's kind of, It's. I think it's, I got on and managed to do it. And as I say, I'm not a gamer and they have different levels and different prizes. Mm. And, you know, you get a bell if you do this and a medal <laughs> if you do that. And, and so that, I mean, that side of it is obviously, you know, it's, it's aiming at the kids and, and whatnot. But it, it really is a, a terrific app. So, and then, of course, the, um, Melbourne Water have got a fantastic frog census app. Yeah, they which, do. And and also the the museum, Melbourne Museum, have got one. And I use those two regularly. And you can even um, go out. So just say you hear frog calling in your garden. You don't have to see it. You can go out. It's got a little recording thing. It records uh, for 30 seconds. And then you say whether you're in an urban area or rural area, is it a pond, is it a river, whatever. And it narrows down the choices of what it could be. And it might give you, say, four choices of what it could be. And then it gives you a little recording of each of those mm. choices so that you can work out exactly what it is. Great. And then, again, you submit your recording, yeah, right. which is fantastic um, for these scientists who are yeah. gathering information yeah. from around the country on what critters are where. And, again, they will confirm or say, actually, no, you were wrong, it's this frog, or they'll say, yep, you're right, it's this frog. So, man, it's, it, the world of apps is just fantastic yeah. in terms of, um, yeah, being able to ID creatures and, and learn about where they live. Yeah, exactly, and, and, it's, and it's giving them the information back as to, as to their locations. Yeah. Because mm. maybe, maybe you've discovered something that nobody knew was in that area. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's yeah, a win-win. It is, and Melbourne Water, in conjunction with some other researchers, we're trying to find out more about the southern toadlet, which is quite an endangered, um, well, not, I suppose not so much endangered, but a bit more rarer and uh, localised species. And, um, yeah, they recently found a population at Sugarloaf Reservoir. So okay. that was, yeah, really exciting. And, <laughs> yeah. so, and we, I went along and did a training session in, in how to find the frog and the the types of areas that it likes to live in so that when I go out, you know, in the bush and whatever, I can see, oh, you know, maybe a southern total it would live here and, yes, and, right. uh, and then record it for them. So Fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Goodness. Well, it's high time we invited our listeners to join us. If you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning or to comment on anything you hear, do give us a call. The number is 94190155 to speak to either AB or James in the studio or if you'd like to have a chat on the outside line this morning, we have Liz on the outside line uh, to speak to Liz, 94198377. I will get to a couple of uh, quick announcements that I need to work through. Firstly, um, 
Cranbourne Friends of the Royal Botanic Gardens um, have got their next plant sale coming up. Uh, the dates are Saturday and Sunday, 27th and 28th of July, 10am through to 4pm on both days. The location, of course, is uh, Cranbourne Botanic Gardens, corner of Bellato Road and Botanic Drive in Cranbourne. They'll have a wide range of Australian plants in tubes and larger pots for sale, uh, priced from $3 upwards. So uh, that's coming up 27th, 28th of July. Uh, now, also, this is one for the diaries, but... Um, a very uh, special speaker is coming out to Australia and uh, the Alpine Garden Society Victoria Group are going to uh, be um, organising uh, a talk to be given by him. Now, this is Oron or Oron Perry from Israel. He's a botanist, a nurseryman, a garden designer and leader of botanical tours in many parts of the world. He's owner of Seeds of Peace, which is a nursery specialising in rare bulbous plants. And uh, this is uh, his first visit to Australia, so it's an opportunity to hear Oron speak. He's presenting two talks, Bulbs of the Mediterranean and Alpine and Other Plants of Chile. And those two talks are taking place on the one day. Uh, it's all happening up at Olinda Community Hall, 12.30pm, running through right through until 5pm. Afternoon tea will be provided. Now, if you're a member of the Alpine Garden Society, uh, $25. Non-members, $45. Uh, for tickets or inquiries, you can go to agsvicgroup at hotmail.com. So that's agsvic group at hotmail.com and the date of that one is 24th of August for those two talks up at Alinda Community Hall so that would be very exciting now I do need to remind listeners uh, which we did at the start of the program a little bit that um, we still do have um, uh, some vouchers left over from the Radiothon uh, we also have uh, some product uh, or we've also got books. So if anyone is interested in popping into the station during office hours, you can have a look over the product and the books and uh, see if there's anything there you'd like. Otherwise, you can uh, give one of the staff members a call during the week um, and just say what you would like. Now, I will quickly go through the, uh, the leftover vouchers again for you because... Um, uh, these are usually uh, these can be posted out to people, so uh, and, and they can also um, be given as uh, gifts, of course, to uh, friends or relatives. So there's two Bulleen Art and Garden Sustainable Living and Garden classes, and these are for two people. Uh, total cost for each one is not for each person, but for each two people, a voucher is eighty dollars. Uh, so that's two separate classes. Uh, and you can choose. You can go online and have a look at the, the amazing classes and workshops that they run down at Bullane Art and Garden. So there's plenty there to choose from to decide which one you'd like to go to. We also have one uh, $20 uh, voucher for Branch Out Nursery, which is in North Ringwood. Um, and, in fact, that's where uh, Chloe Foster mm. works, uh, I think, about three days a week from memory. Um, there's also one Edible Eden Design class, uh, which is to take place on the 27th of July, so not far away. 
and that's on native edibles, walk, talk and taste, and that's held in um, in Karen Sutherland's own garden there. We have one fifty dollar uh, Fitzroy nursery voucher, and we still have. Uh, Vouchers for our very special private tour of Ripponlea um, and uh, that's to take place on the 2nd of September. Now, uh, that's uh, a $50 voucher, normally uh, worth $60, but $50, this is especially for our listeners. It'll start with a tour of the garden uh, with Matt, who's Operations and Public Program Coordinator out at Ripponlea, plus one of the National Trust Gardeners, that's touring the garden. And then uh, after that, you tour the inside of the mansion with Matt uh, to hear all about the history of the mansion as well. So uh, that's all taking place 2nd of September. We still have vouchers for that one. Uh, again, if you'd like to give the station a call during office hours and uh, grab one or two of these, take a friend with you and have a wonderful morning out uh, looking through Rip and Lee and learning all about it. In fact, I'm hoping to have Matt on the program um, over the next sometime in the next few weeks, so uh, you can find out a little bit more about it then. Uh, okay, so uh, as I mentioned, if you'd like to ask a gardening question, the number to speak to AB and James, 94190155, or to speak to Liz, 94198377. Uh, now, Susie phoned and there a name for the Plant ID app that was... Oh, Quest a Game. Ah, oh, Quest a Game, okay. Yep. Yes, but you've mentioned a few other apps Actually, too. Actually, that's, that's not a plant ID, that's more critter. Right. Yeah, so that that's more about uh insects and frogs and mm-hmm. and whatnot. Yep. Um and then we talked about a couple of the the frog apps. So that was the Melbourne Water one and the um Melbourne Museum app. Did we talk about a plant idea? Oh I did talk about a phone. Uh, I'm not sure which phone it is, but there's some phone that you can take a photo of, of a critter or a plant and, and it IDs it for you. Okay. Which yeah. Sounds like it's going to put a lot of um, mm. a lot of botanists etc out of business. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> They'll tec- make sure they don't. Technology ruining the value of knowledge again. <laughs> Th- that's there. right. That's exactly right. But uh, Pam, just getting back to those uh, those Rip and Lee. I mean, both James and I obviously we used to work at Gardening Australia, which was behind the it was where yes, it was behind right Rip and Lee. Yes. And um, James is busy killing a critter. Don't I you know, James? We've got to protect our insects. We need our insects. I think I brought it in on my plant. Um, anyway, yeah. So, I mean, it's worth going just for the fernery alone. Yeah, it is. How amazing is yeah. that fernery? Before we came on air, I was saying that I took my nephew there yep. um, a few weeks ago and we were having a wander around the place and he was, he's kind of interested in horticulture. He was working with me for a while and he was, he was kind of, you know, yeah, it's really good. Middle of winter, there's not a huge amount of mm-hmm. colour around or anything yep. like that. But. As soon as he walked into that fernery, he yeah. just almost wet himself. Right. He just loved it. It's absolutely massive. loved it. Yeah, it's it's absolutely so impressive. Massive. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, of course, they've got that heritage orchard there and the vegetable course, garden, yeah, which su- provides all the vegetables for Attica. Attica yeah. That's right. I yes. always love having a wander through there and see what they've got growing. Yes. So they had, a, they had a huge crop of um, yam daisy coming along when we oh, were there really? a few weeks ago. Oh, yeah, they did. that's so exciting. Oh, wow. So, so Ben Shuri is, is, is cooking so. yam daisy. Yeah, yeah there was wow. quite a lot there. Yeah, because yeah, you need quite a lot. You've grown them, haven't you? Yeah, I have, yeah. 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 So yeah. they've got several beds planted out. 
Wow. I, I, I was looking at them and having grown them before, I was a bit, mm, you could have gone a bit harder with those. You could have been a bit, you know, put them a bit more dense in, mm-hmm. they, you know, had them spaced quite a bit. But yeah. Um, but, yeah, there's quite a few of them. So if anyone wants to pay $600 for a, for a lovely meal involving <laughs> yam daisy, yeah, then go to Attica at some point or in the next spend, month or two. Or uh, spend $5 on a packet of seeds and grow <laughs> yeah, your own. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so have you eaten them? Did you harvest and eat yeah, yours? Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. delicious. Was it yeah. a very quick meal? They had, it was a very quick <laughs> meal, yeah. I just, I just roasted them. So yeah. you know, as one of the one of the ways that um, the indigenous nations would have cooked them was just kind of roasting them on a fire. So yes. I yeah. just did kind of roasting them in the oven as well. Fair enough. Kind of slightly sweet, almost coconutty kind of flavour. Oh, okay. Quite quite soft, nice, yeah, but yeah. good, really good. But so it didn't taste like chicken then? Not like no, chicken, no, okay. yeah, <laughs> no, unfortunately. Any not, any similarities to say a Jerusalem artichoke? No, I kind of likened it more to a taro kind of oh, thing. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Yep. yeah. So quite starchy. Yeah. 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 More similar and and to how taro. large or small? Well, the ones that I got were, um, I think there's a video on my Instagram actually, but it'll be a few years ago. It's a few years since I've done it. Um, but I got tubers. I, I did pretty well. Um, I got some tubers that were, what's what's the best scale to describe it on really? Yeah. Um, Still relative, isn't it? Yeah, yeah there's a carrot. It's a carrot. <laughs> like there's those there's those baby carrots that you get. I've never seen them in Australia, but you get them overseas where they're little kind of thumb sized mm-hmm, carrots. Mm-hmm. Mine were my my yam daisies were about that big. Okay. okay. And they were in clusters around the individual plants. Okay. Oh, right. Yeah, right. And they weren't just individual um, tubers. They yep. were clusters of tubers. Okay. Yeah. And is it a matter of harvesting that season to so that they're tender, or can you let them go another season and and they're a bit bigger and I I don't know the answer to that question. Mm. Um, I pulled mine out and ate them all, um, mm-hmm. but I did save seed off of some and sowed them and they mm-hmm. germinated, but yeah. I needed room for other things, so I ended up whipping them out and not growing them again, right. um, unfortunately. But so to, to grow them well, I think I think you need to get your, t- your timing right, as with every mm. vegetable crop that mm. you plant. Um, but I planted my yam daisies at the end of autumn and mm-hmm. harvested them in very early spring. Mm-hmm. So I, I tried to, I looked at the date that they have the Yam Daisy Festival mm-hmm. um, here in Melbourne that the Darabin Council puts mm-hmm. on um, on the Merry Creek. And yeah. I thought, well, if they're harvesting at that time of year, what time of year would be best to put them in the ground? Yeah. Yes. And I got my timing pretty good, I reckon, because yeah. I, I produce pretty sizable tubers off That's about great. a dozen plants. Yeah. Um, but yeah, look, I look, I really liked them. I thought they were they were nice, but long term cold weather crop, you know, if I was if I was going to go away for a few months over winter or something, I'd probably think about, you know, putting them in. But I did buy them from tubes, and mm-hmm. you know, if you're buying them for tubes and they're two ninety five per tube, and you want to plant two hundred of them, yeah, then it's yeah. a bit yeah. expensive. It's pretty expensive. Yeah. 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 yeah, I often think that with veggies, you know, the more that you can get for for from the one plant, like tomatoes, you get a whole bunch of tomatoes. You mm. know, onion, you put one onion, you get one onion. <laughs> yes, yes, <laughs> I'll go and buy them. And onion. they're so readily yeah. available. So readily, There's no point. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Whereas actually, leeks, I did leeks um, a couple of years or a while ago now, but mm. they, they were fantastic, and they just hang around in the ground until you're ready mm. to pick them. So, yeah. yeah, really enjoyed that. But So would you recommend with the yam daisies, so rather than use them through your ornamental garden, actually have a separate bed like, your, I, like I, a vegetable I, garden? I grew bed. them in the vegetable garden. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah. 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 So it's one of those things, I reckon, because I've tried to... I've tried to grow them on my nature strip as well, yeah. which is which is soil is completely unimproved. Um, 
and I generally just plant stuff in there and it never gets any supplementary water from a hose at all. Yep. Um, whereas in the vegetable garden, if it's a bit dry over winter, I will give it a bit of a sprinkle, yep. which I did with these when I grew them, with the yam daisies. Um, and I think growing them in a really good soil certainly helped kick them along. Mm. And it's one of those things that you have to keep in mind with a lot of grassland species um, in Australia and especially in Victoria is that once upon a time, our grasslands had quite rich soils, mm. not deep soils, mm. yeah, but, but quite rich, quite mm. rich mm. and good soil before mm. hard-hooved animals mm. came in and completely ruined it. Completely compacted um, everything. Yeah, yeah. So, so planting those kind of things in a good soil is a good idea, mm. I think, mm. in that So regard. obviously fertiliser didn't worry them either? Well, I don't really fertilise in my vegetable garden. I just keep a lot of compost and right. I'll my, apply you manure once every soil, two years. Pam. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, look, I've had, this, I've had this suspicion for the last ten years of gardening that, that we all over fertilize really mm-hmm. and if you if you have a lot of organic matter in your soil that helps to hold on to nutrients mm. and water mm. so when you do apply anything that's got nutrients in it you get the full value out of all of it mm. if you've got a if you've got an organic if you've matter got a really soil. good soil yeah so i consequently only fertilize really really lightly and even then it's only by application of manures yep and the heaviest the heaviest fertilizing i did in the last year was um through a friend of a friend, um, met a pigeon fancier and got a bag of pigeon poo okay. from him. And yes. that's potent stuff, you know, so I was quite sparing with it on my vegetable garden. But last spring and summer and this winter, I've grown the best backyard vegetables I have in years. Well, there yeah. you go. So, you know, and <laughs> it's still still going. Yeah, still going. No, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm conscious of over-fertilising as well because those things find itself, it's find its way into waterways Pretty, uh, sure. pretty quickly yeah, as well. Yep. We're talking about you know amphibian health and things and frog health in yep. Yep. in our local waterways. Exactly. Nutrient runoff is one of the one of the biggest problems mm. that that we face as people. I mean, mm. even you know looking at it at a larger scale as well, like the Great Barrier Reef, one of the things that it's facing is excess nutrient mm, runoff right. from yep. from all of the all of the farms and things that yep. are in the catchment areas. Which are exacerbated from all the clearing. Totally. Yeah. That's yeah, right. Yeah. It's all connected. It has, it has a big impact, stuff. doesn't it? Yeah. Mm. Mm. And yeah, getting back to the yam daisy, I suppose like in years gone by with the indigenous folk, I mean there was a lot of cultural burns going on and mm. you know putting back that uh, phosphorus into the soil and yep. you know supporting supporting the plants that way yeah um, I went on a cultural burn um, oh, probably about a month ago now oh, with great. with with Uncle Dave cool. and um, from the Wurundjeri clan and that was fantastic so I was on um, it was on private land it was on a um, private property just in Christmas Hills near me and um, you know I walked onto the property and it's sort of woodland a bit of grass and I thought oh you know this looks really good it looks nice healthy land and Uncle Dave came along and he said this is sick land and I was like mm. okay so now I've got to look at it with new eyes yes uh, why is it sick land what's going on and he said you know once this w- would have been covered in grasses you know there was a few tussocks around um, but not a lot at all so a lot of leaf litter and uh, of course grazed by rabbits grazed by deer um, all these problems. So then, you know, just talked about how um, 
you know, in, in their culture, they would have a fire elder. You know, they obviously have different um, specialised elders for lots of different things. And um, he's uh, training to be a, uh, a fire elder. He's, he's not sort of the official fire elder yet, but yep. he's on his way and got a huge amount of knowledge. And, uh, yeah, so just talked about how um, the fire elder would come along and say uh, to the rest of the um, rest of the group, rest of the mob, oh, um, fantastic conditions for, for burning. So the whole um, clan would go out to do a cultural burn for the day or a couple of days. And so essentially, you know, there was only a small group that went along and um, we looked at the leaf litter, we looked at the lay of the land, where the wind was coming from, all those sorts of things. And then essentially um, Uncle Dave built a fire and got that started and then we all came along with pieces of stringy bark, lit mm. the stringy bark and built little fires around the place. And it was really interesting because I sort of had always had in my head that these cultural burns are about you know, burning really quickly and getting the fire going. Mm. But it's all about the real slow burns Mm. because he was saying it's really important. Uh, You don't want a fire that's really hot because it's going to destroy those invertebrates in that Mm. first layer of soil. Uh, So you want to have a really slow burn. You want to create this white smoke. And, um, you know, we did some tests. The soil had to be wet but not too wet. Yep. And ditto the, the grasses and, and other shrubbery around it had to have a, a certain amount of moisture um, but not be too dry, not be too wet so that it burned mm. just right. Okay. And uh, so we made lots of little piles of fires around the place. And Muddy was saying one of the um, pieces of knowledge that they had they shared with you know the CFA and Delp and whatnot who go out and do their burns um, their fire reduction burns um, where they create a, a square like they'll go out with kerosene or I'm not sure what uh, fuel that they use but they <coughs> essentially create a square and then burn the fire into the middle mm. and of course Uncle Dave was saying that how are the critters going to escape yeah. yes that's if right. you have created if you've surrounded them with fire so you talk about you just create lines of fire so and you we were there and we could see you know um, lots of little critters scurrying away and they'd scurry up trees and mm. and uh, the kookaburras started hanging around because yeah. oh, Bet. There was a lot more movement <laughs> yeah. in the soil, so, and they were having a, an absolute feast. But it was really interesting and just learning about what is going to make a, a healthy country, yeah. essentially. And so that slow, cool burn is really the yeah. central part of it, isn't it? It is. Absolutely. I mean, the first settler accounts in Western Australia and all the cowrie forests of um, fires that, that First Nations people used to light that would burn for months and yeah. months yeah, and months okay. because they were so slow so burning. So slow, mm. yeah. yeah. So, I mean, sometimes I think we think of, oh, you know, these cultural burns and, and we're nervous about them because we just think of these massive bushfires mm. right. that go through, but it's nothing like that at all. And, and it's also about connecting the people back to the land mm. and, and walking on it and seeing what's going on and seeing, as Uncle Dave was saying, is it healthy or isn't it healthy? So hopefully the burns that we did, you know, the ash there, that's going to encourage the, the, the grassy regrowth and, and they'll go back and, and re-burn it as well. So it's a, sort of an ongoing process in this on this area. So. What a fantastic opportunity. Yeah, it was really good. And, in fact, you can hop online. There's actually um, a couple of websites now. I think one of them might be called Firestick, mm. where you can... 
can hop on if you're interested in, in going along to a cultural burn. Okay. You can register your interest and then you're, mm-hmm. yeah, you're, you're told where they are. And you can literally just turn up um, on the day and you, you've given a fantastic information session by whatever elder is taking it. And, yeah, you'll learn about the land. You'll learn about the, the plants on, in that area and, and the critters in that area. And, and, and what I, I think is really good is... Um, you get that information about how to burn as well, mm. and, and you also learn how to, in one sense, not be afraid of fire. Mm. And, um, you know, because where we are in, you know, in the surrounding suburbs of Kangaroo Ground, I see a lot of people, and they create these massive piles of sticks and oh, twigs yes. and, and logs. So they're cleaning up around their property, but they're cleaning up in a sort of a perimeter that's much further from the house. I understand that people, obviously, you don't want your house to burn down. Mm. But then they clear up these huge swathes of land around the property and they really are destroying the local ecology simply Habitat by, by burning. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. You know, there's a fantastic story about the... Um, the bull oak jewel butterfly. And it's a butterfly that um, lives in this tiny, tiny little area in uh, southeast Queensland, just near the Darling Downs. And, you know, very, it's one of the, um, what they call the blue butterflies. So it um, fits into that category. You know, I think there's five categories of butterflies and it fits into the blues. And similar to the Altham copper butterfly, it's related to the Altham okay. copper butterfly. And all of these blue butterflies, they have an association with one particular species of ant. Yep. And this particular butterfly, it's, it's such an incredible story. Mm. So the, the bull oak jewel butterfly... The adults are flying around this one particular tree, so it's an Alacasurina lumaniana, so um, the bull oak, which is actually the, stro- the hardest wood in the world. Mm. Is, is it, it really? Is it? Yeah, the hardest wood. So it's um, got on the measurement scale. I forgot what the measurement scale is, but yeah, it's, it's been um, found to be the hardest wood in the world. And so these adult butterflies are flapping around above the Alacasurina lumaniana, and um, they see a particular scale insect and as we know ants are also associated with scale insects because they give out this honeydew which they like and so the butterflies are flying above and they look down and they go oh look at that scale insect I I recognise that scale insect that's a friend of that particular ant that I like so they come down the female lays her eggs and immediately the ants come along and they go, ooh, we like this little egg. So they take the egg and they take it into hollows in the tree. And the hollows have been created by a, a particular timber moth. Okay. And um, by the larva of this one particular timber moth um, that burrows into this tree. And the ants have their nests in there. And they, so they take it in there and they nurture it. And when it hatches, same with the Altham copper butterfly, they take the larva. When the larva are really little, they carry the larvae out mm. to feed on the leaves of the Alacasurina. Mm. And they take it back into the safety of the hollow of these moths every wow. night. And when the, when the larvae get a bit bigger... Um, the ants leave a little pheromone trail, so the larvae follow that pheromone trail. And it's it it's absolutely insane. And what researchers <laughs> have found is that these ants, they also live in nearby um, angophora trees, so that they live in the mistletoe of these particular oh. angophora trees. Right. And, but to get from the angophora trees uh, to the alicasurinas, 
they go on logs. They don't like to go on the ground. Mm. Okay. So, of course, what happens with all the logs lying on the ground that is just essentially rubbish, farmers come along, they use them for firewood or they clear them because they don't want fire going through the land and essentially you just absolutely break that ecology of the butterfly, which is 100% dependent on these ants to take it around the place for for its survival. Wow. That's incredible. That's one story that I (laughs) often think of when I'm driving around kangaroo ground and see everyone creating these (laughs) massive piles of sticks and twigs I want to say, you could be destroying a butterfly. <laughs> but it's interesting so, that people don't make that connection. They just think fire, they think debris, yeah, fire, death. Yeah, so they want to get rid of it. That's yeah. exactly right. And also because these uh, the trees are, has such strong wood, they're used for wood turning. They're really popular for wood turning. Right. And they're really popular for fence posts. Wow. And I think they used to use them as... Um, they used to use them for nails in, re- in ship repairing wow. in, oh, wow. in yeah, early colonial okay. days in Australia. That, ma- that would yeah. make sense, yep. yeah. 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 Yeah, so it's, um, it, I mean, uh, the thing is, like, y- you don't really think, we don't think of those connections. You don't <laughs> think that by moving a couple of sticks to, you know, for kindling for your fire exactly. in winter, you're going to potentially be de- destroying the ecology ecology of a butterfly or, yeah. or other critter. You just don't, we don't make those connections and... So, yeah, I've just found that story so incredible. And there's also, there's a bit more to it. You know, there's a real association with the particular mistletoe. And, yeah, the and mistletoe element was something I thought, wow, that's that's It's incredible, yeah. yeah. And, I mean, we often think of mistletoes as being quite, um, you know, dangerous to the tree. It's going to kill the health of the tree. But researchers have found that they're essentially these absolute hothouses of, of zoos essentially yeah. supporting um, really beneficial critters. So, okay. yeah, I so always like seeing them and when they're at a oh, level where you can actually oh, go up yes. and get a good look at a mistletoe, yes. they're fascinating plants. Yeah, they are. Yeah, just amazing. Yeah. The flowers on them alone are gorgeous. Yeah, yeah and we've really got great. the most mistletoes in the world in, mm. in Australia which is, you know, it shows how important they are on an ecological scale mm. and uh, yeah, it, like if farmers leave them, a lot of farmers um, you know, clear, clear their land um, but the savvy ones leave certain trees certain mature trees that have got these mistletoes in them and essentially they're um, all the supporting bugs that are going to come down and protect their crops and they're whatnot good for their crops. yeah they're yeah. really good Absolutely. for the crops so yeah. fantastic you know, I love that bull like and it's same with the Eltham copper butterfly story exactly it's, very, it's a great story. very similar very similar and, yeah, yes. but yeah, yeah beautiful story yeah great excellent that sort of reminded me that I should remind listeners that NADOC week is coming up. Um, and uh, as part of NADOC Week, uh, friends of the Melton Botanic Gardens are having a guided walking tour next Friday, 12th of July. Uh, so uh, you can do a, a guided walk through the Melton Botanic Garden to see indigenous plants from the Melton region and Aboriginal use plants, including bush tucker plants. Um, it'll be a gentle walk of about one and a half hours, followed by morning tea. Highlights of the natural features and remnant vegetation, Ryan's Creek and the Lake Indigenous Plantings, Koori Student Garden, Indigenous People's Garden, Victorian Volcanic Plains Garden and the Bush Foods Garden. So, as I said, it's all taking place next Friday, 12th of July, 10am till noon, with morning tea provided. You meet at the Depot and Plant Nursery, which is at 21 Williams Street in Melton. Uh, to make a booking, um, you, which will assist with the catering, uh, you can phone John Bentley, 
3819. Leave a message if it's unattended or you can email friends at fmbg.org.au. So, uh, yes, we should uh, remind listeners, if you want to join us this morning, I think they've been so busy listening to all your stories, Amy. If you do want to... No, that's good, that's good. (laughs) We've all found it fascinating. Um, But if you'd like to ask a gardening question this morning and uh, and you want to speak to AB or James, 94190155, or if you'd like to speak to Liz on the outside line, 94198377. 94198377. James, you've brought in a couple of plants, and I, I should remind listeners these have all gone through the photos to our Facebook page. So um, just jump on Facebook and uh, type in 3CR Gardening Show, and you'll be able to see what we're about to talk about. Very good, yes. Um, I, was, I was kind of rattling around the house this morning early, thinking, you know, being just past the, uh, the winter solstice. There's not a lot flowering in my garden at the moment, um, but I thought the theme dark, seeing as it was still dark when I got out of bed and when I left the house this morning to come into the studio, um, was a good theme. So I got a couple of species of um, Ripsalis, two two of the mistletoe cacti that um, have become quite de rigueur in the last five or six years. They're quite popular. I think a lot of the a lot of the hipsters are growing them as house plants. Yes, and that exactly. Kind of stuff. That's that's um, what's really sparked them on. <clears throat> yeah, but they look they're really good plants to grow. They're from Central Central America. Um, they are epiphytic. Some of them are lithophytes. They kind of grow on rocks and stuff in mm-hmm. their in their natural habitat. Um, so I've read that some of them even grow on power lines and things mm. in Central American cities. Okay. So, <clears throat> you know, if something's going to grow on a power line naturally... <laughs> pretty tough. It's going to be pretty tough. <laughs> it sure yeah, is. <laughs> yeah. And a, and, a, and a good measure of how tough these are is that um, I was away overseas for a good five weeks and have a have a nephew that I'm kind of raising over the line into adulthood and he was in charge of watering the plants and stuff when we okay. were away. And guess what he didn't do? Um, so I lost a few things, but the mistletoe cacti, I turned, I turned, you know, got back home and they looked pretty unwell, but a little bit of water and literally two or three days later, they looked brand new. Okay. You know? So they, they are extremely, extremely tough. Um, that one looks like a giant stick insect. This one is excellent. This one is one of my favourites. This is um, Ripsalis pentaptera. Um, and it's got it's got very thick um, leaves. They're all kind of because they're 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 lithophytes or um, or uh, God I've, I've the other one the other one <laughs> I know um, they they've got this pendulous habit um, so they they look good in hanging baskets and that kind of stuff as well which is how I grow them um, but this one has quite thick stems compared to a lot of the ones that you see um, the more popular ones that you see for sale in Australia mm. um, and when I bought this it was it was probably no bigger than this cutting that I've brought in, but in a pot, so sitting up that way. Mm-hmm. Okay. And now it's got the foliage coming down either side of mm. the pot, and it's, it's a, and it's a good metre long off the, wow. off the hanging basket. It's got a bit of a creepy spider vibe about it as mm. well, mm. you know, yeah. like it gets a bit bigger. But I, I picked these this morning to bring them along because they've got the little, this, this one especially, Pentaptera, has the, has the little seed casing on it, which are actually edible on on the Ripsalis. Um, they've got like a weird little lychee kind of flavour to them and they kind of look like a little lychee. Um, they've got a little hard seed in the middle of it 
Um, but they're totally edible. You're not going to get a huge meal out of any no, of them. No, you're not. Um, <laughs> you're going to have to do a lot of picking. Yeah. but It doesn't uh, really taste like anything. Yeah, that's kind of late in the season. When they first appear after the flowers, which would have been about two months ago, they do have much more of a defined flavour mm-hmm. about them, but then they hang around on the plant for a little while afterwards before they drop off. So each of these little internodes that you can see here, they would have a seed and the seed casing okay. um, on them. So they, yeah. get, they get kind of covered in it. Yep. Um, the zygote cactus like aren't they they're very similar yeah, yeah. they've got more kind of rounded stems yeah, yeah. Um, but they grow in similar conditions essentially mm-hmm. okay um, and the other species I brought along is um, Ripsalis clavata which is really really beautiful it's great so same same principle as the pentapter actually it's got foliage that's probably about a metre long on either side of the hanging basket, then it's really good for doing Stevie Wonder impressions. It's got, this, it's got this kind of dreadlock quality about it. Yeah, I really, really like it. Um, but, I mean, a testament to them being, um, to being uh, uh, you know, things that don't grow in soil, essentially, is that... Um, this little cutting of the clavado, the Ripsalis clavada that I've brought in today, it's actually got roots on it already. So when we get into a stage of year where there's quite a bit of moisture hanging around, mm. if, we get, if we get a good week's rain or so, um, this species in particular starts putting out roots like mad from, okay. from its internodes, and you can see that on the one yeah. that I brought in now. Yeah. Um, but look, really tough. They, they would make a good indoor plant in a kind of north-facing... Oh, well... I was going to say north-facing window, but I grow both of these in total shade. They never see one scintilla of direct sunlight at all. Okay. And I think that's how they kind of prefer it. But anywhere bright, indirectly lit indoors, I think they would do quite well too. And look, they are literally the kind of plant that looks like they're completely desiccated and they're probably dead or just on the verge of, you know, Mm. over that line. And you give them a bit of water and they just perk up again. You know, they're really, really useful. They strike really easy from cuttings, which, as you would expect, given the fact that they'll put out roots so yes, readily yes, when there's a bit mm. of moisture around. Um, and having grown it um, for a few years and having grown cuttings from it, um, the best way to take cuttings is to basically grab a big handful like that and stick it in a pot. Mm-hmm. Because when they strike, when you kind of reset them, when you try and get new plants off them, they're quite slow. They'll take a good 12 to 18 months before they get any presence about them at okay. all. So starting out with a big handful and just basically sticking it in a pot and, yep. and making sure it doesn't dry out is, mm-hmm. is the best way to do it. Okay. But once they do get their roots established, 12 to 18 months, and then after that, they increase their growth rate to an extent, but they're, never, they're not fast growers. Yeah, so... I've got these pots at home um, of both of these species, and I probably put them in about six years ago. Okay. And getting to a stage where the stems on them are, are about a metre from the top of the pot. Yeah, right. Have, have gone that kind of pendulous going south way for about a metre, but it's taken six years to get there. And it's getting to a stage now where I'm probably just going to have to trim them up mm-hmm. as well because yep. it's going to be getting a little bit heavy. But yep. then lots of cuttings, pot them up. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Did you talk about Great. flowers? I can't remember if you talked about flowers. Yeah, well, they do flower, obviously. Yeah. We're obviously going to flower before they set seed. Yeah. Um, the Ripsalis clavata, this one here, the second one that I've been talking about, um, it hasn't actually flowered ever since I've grown it. Um, mm-hmm. But the Pentaptera, the big um, freaky kind of spider-looking one, that flowers every year and it flowers really reliably. Mm-hmm. And the flowers are like, they're like a little, um, oh, what would they, they kind of look like, um, they look a little bit like a, um, 
caper flowers, actually. Oh, okay. But really yeah, tiny, yeah, yeah. really, really tiny. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And, and they just, you know, well, anywhere that you would see a seed in any of those little internodal points, mm-hmm. that's, that, where, that's where the flowers come yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. And, it's, and it's the kind of thing that, you know, you look at it and it's kind of late summer, early autumn that it would flower. Okay. Um, but, yeah, highly ornamental. Yeah, really, yeah. really nice. But a good couple of plants. And, look, they're the kind of thing that if you start growing them, um, you'd probably get quite addicted to them and want to collect quite a few of the mm. species as yep. well. But mm. talking about taxonomy, they're one of those genera where mm. it's, yeah, yeah, it's moving. It's moving all the okay. time. So. <laughs> <laughs> all right. We'd better go to our first caller, and we have uh, Anne out in Northcote. Good morning, Anne. Good morning. Good morning. I wanted to ask about white flies, in particular in relation to my pomegranate, which is a very old tree, very pretty and um, craggy old tree. Uh, but it, and this, <laughs> it's been planted on the south side of my house um, many years ago, close to the house, and then the previous owners have planted a lemon tree in front of it. So it's really struggling to get the light that it needs. Yeah. Um, but it's still very beautiful. But it um, attracts a lot of white flies. Um, when, when it's in peak, and I've tried a few different things. I've got the yellow thing pan down, and I just wanted <clears throat> I tried um, to remove all the the autumn leaves from the site um, a few years ago, and that seemed to make quite a difference to the reproductive cycle of the white fly. So I didn't put them in the compost. I put them in the bin, and just that general. Hygiene. Do, do we think that the white fly do? I'm mean, wasting my time doing that and not putting the leaves in the compost because if it's not a the way the white fly reproduces, then I'll stop doing it. If you know what I mean? Yeah, and look, the, the white fly. I mean, there's there's a couple of couple of species of white fly, but um, sort of quite hard to tell the difference. So white fly is white fly. Um, sap suckers, as you probably know, um, produce um, honeydew as well. So you can get a sooty mould thing going on, especially if it's not in a really sunny spot. Um, and as you probably realise, they breed up super, super fast. So the, mm. the thing with white fly is to... Uh, break that life cycle as quickly as possible. Same with, you know, aphids at the start of um, stone fruit season when they start coming into the nectarine and peach trees. If you break that initial life cycle, you really are going to get control of the population. Um, One of the ways you can do that is sticky yellow traps. White (laughs) flies really are attracted to uh, yellow, and that's a fantastic way of starting to, to break that life cycle. Um, you can um, hose them off. You sort of treat it like aphids in a way. You yes. can hose them off. You can vacuum them off. You can, if your vacuum can reach out there, you can squish them. But essentially, it's just about breaking that life cycle before the population explodes, essentially. And I'm not sure they would overwinter in leaves. I, I don't, though, do I don't think they would. Yeah, so I'm not I, sure I cleaning the leaves would. up would really help at all, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's just giving yourself extra work. Mm. <clears throat> one, of the, one of the ways that I've controlled whitefly in my garden at home um, in the past couple of years, and look, to be, to be going to the cause of the problem as well, the fact that the pomegranate isn't getting much sun and it's struggling mm. and it's yes. not particularly healthy, yep. that's the reason the whitefly are going yep, for that's it. That's right. Um, yep. So, you know, you can, you can try and get rid of them with a great many... Um, 
ways of of treating them, but you know, unless you address the root cause, you're always going to be you're always going to have problems. Yeah, yeah. Yep. you know, you're you're reacting to the symptom of it rather than the, the root cause of it. Um, so so getting that pomegranate, digging it up and getting it out into an area that's that got spot. much more sun, a lot more um, sun, a lot of air movement. Absolutely, yep. the the white fly mm. will not touch it if the plant is happy because they're they're extremely tough pomegranates. They're one of the you know most bomb proof plants on the face of the planet. Um, it could be about a 40-year-old tree. It's not moving. It's not de Yeah, okay. that, that's and, a shame. And the lemon's about a 20-year-old tree. Yeah, yeah. no worries. So you and don't the, want to go They're planted on the south the side of the house, did you say? Yeah, that's yes. not great. That's not yeah. great for either of them. I'm, I'm up in a new pomegranate farm. Yes, <laughs> I'd be tempted to, to lash out and buy a new yeah. one. Um, yeah. One of the, one of the kind of novel ways that I've... Tree. It's right outside my bedroom window and it just... Bring so much pleasure. Yeah, yeah, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. So you don't want to move it at all. But look, one of the novel ways that I've treated white fly in my garden in the past is mm-hmm. there's a there's a parasitic wasp that you can get from Bugs for Bugs. I think it's I can't remember what the common name of it, but I think it's I think its scientific name is Eretmoserus hyartii or something like that. Um, but I've I've purchased that a couple of times in the past and I've introduced it into my garden in early spring. When I when I started the garden that I'm in now, um, I found that the first few years that I was in while the garden was still young, I got a lot of white fly early in the season. And if I didn't, as AB said, break that life cycle, then I would just continue to have problems with it all the way through spring and summer. So I got onto Bugs for Bugs and I got some of these little parasitic wasps, which I think were originally from India. Um, and then introduced them into the garden, and and they reduced the incidence of white fly white fly by about, I reckon maybe seventy or eighty percent. It didn't get rid of them okay. completely. Mm. Um, and yeah. even then, one of the guys that I was corresponding with at Bugs for Bugs, he said it's the kind of thing that you have to reintroduce every year. But we're actually getting to a stage in Melbourne where our overnight low temperatures are, are getting higher and higher, and um, we might even be at a stage soon in the next couple of years where those parasitic wasps might actually survive winter and establish themselves as a part of the ecology there. Oh, here. okay. So, mm. um, which, you know, they're very specific to attacking whitefly, so, you know, they wouldn't cause a whole lot of problems doing that. But, I mean, that's that's another option. But, as well, again, it's, you know, I think you'd be better off with the hose method or something like mm. that, to be honest, early and the in other, the season. Yeah, and the other thing, and really try and work on the health of the plant. So, mm. as James was saying, I mean, if, if a plant is sick, it emits these particular chemicals, essentially saying, oh, I'm really, really sick, and these chemicals attract um, pest insects, which then come in and decimate the plant, essentially. So you want to really increase the, the health of the plant. You know, even, I know James doesn't agree with the seaweed solution, but <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a bit of a proponent for it. I, I like seaweed solution. I think it does the trick. Um, so a bit of seaweed, you know, um, compost around the base of the plant. Uh, you don't can, you, can you also prune it and open up the tree a bit more to yeah. get yeah, more of that air movement. That is absolutely. I, do, yeah. I prune it like crazy, but then I usually end up with so few fruit because choosing the ones that, you know, that leaving the old ones to fruit and taking new ones out is a major challenge. But all the branches grow straight up virtually trying to get to the light. Yeah. Um, yep. So it is a very congested tree, and I do prune it a lot. I'd, I'd just remove some of the branches that are in the centre of the tree. Yeah. Yes. And oh, leave yes. your outside the ones. It's very open. Yes. Oh, okay. It is. It's okay. Quite an unusual structure, and it's right in the corner between the house and the fence. It's um, struggled so much. Yeah. I don't want to really lose it because it's just. No, a that's fair enough. The old craggy old thing. Yep. Um, yeah. And yeah, it, it doesn't really have 
much opportunity to get down to the roots because it's in like a, a bed with mm. bricks and concrete around it. It's all it shows you how tough they are. Yeah, yes, right. it does. Yeah. <laughs> but really, I mean, there sort of is no answer, Anne. You're, you're going, always going to struggle with it, essentially. It's in the wrong yeah. spot. I think one yeah. of the other things you might be able to try is if you're willing to sacrifice, you know, a year's crop in your citrus, you could always look at giving your citrus a really hard prune to oh, open it up and that. let a bit more light in. Um, you know, you're probably looking at about 12 to 18 months before you get another crop off the citrus, maybe two years before you get a crop off the citrus if you're going to really give it a severe prune. But that's going to let a lot more light in. It's going to let you maybe prune up the prune up the pomegranate a bit more, not as severely as you would the citrus, but it's yeah, going to allow yeah, a lot yeah. more. It's going to allow a lot more sunlight in there it's going to allow a lot more airflow which could go a long way to reducing your incidence of white fly on mm. that pomegranate but it's another has option done, really. has done. Yeah. and because my citrus has um, got heaps of gall wasps i'm constantly taking limbs out and, right you know. right so it's just badly situated so yeah, all sure. right well i just really want to know about probably that last cycle thing because mm. it's such a waste to put the leaves yeah in the mm. I'd, I'd go ahead and put them in, in your compost <laughs> yeah yeah, or, or leave them in situ. Or, you yeah, know? I mean, one reason that plants lose their leaves essentially, the the, the nutrients from those leaves then go into the soil to feed mm. the plant again. I mean, if mm. uh, if a plant is a needs mulch, it's a self mulching plant and it'll drop its leaves. If it doesn't need mulch, it essentially won't drop its leaves. Yeah. Um, but yeah, get those sticky yellow traps out as well, Anne. All right. Well, all all of those things are great, and the wasp advice is something really worth considering. But mm-hmm. also. As you say, AB is um, giving the plant a little bit more health around mm. the yep. base. Yep. Mm. Thanks very much. Okay, good luck with that. Thanks. Bye. Bye. That number again, if you'd like to join us this morning, 94190155 to speak to AB or James or to have a chat to Liz on the outside line, 94198377. James, you've got one last plant there I think we haven't mentioned. I've got two. Oh, I may, two. I may as well okay. see the photos have been yep. posted. But, um, yep, absolutely. <clears throat> one, of the, one of the ones that I've got, and, and again, it's growing smack bang um, up on a south-facing um, bed in my front garden. Um, it's basically under the eave of the house as well. It's um, a plant that people who have been to the children's garden at the oh, Royal yes. Botanic Gardens would yes. know well. Um, asparagus. Um, Densiflorus myersii. Um, it's used in that kind of underwater sea theme coral garden mm. in the children's garden. It's mm. one of the best uses of that plant that I've ever seen yeah, and perhaps it is a will great ever see use. in my yes. horticultural I career. Agree. Yeah, it's just fantastic. Um, but one of the advantages of growing it in the situation that I do is that I've never actually flowered it. If you if you grow it in a lot of sun and it, and you know it does like a bit of sun, it'll grow much slower in a shadier aspect like I've got it in. Um, I've never seen it flower, so I've consequently never seen it set seed okay. um, either. It's not a hugely well-known bushland weed or anything like that. I worked in bushland for five or six years, and I never once saw it growing in bushland at all. It's kind of like a tuberous, tuberous perennial um, species of asparagus, but it's got these beautiful long... It's, one of its common names is the foxtail yes. fern. Mm. Yes. Um, it's got these beautiful, big, kind of cone-shaped... Um, uh, foliage sprays that come up out of the ground and <clears throat> as a as a texture and a kind of an architectural plant mm. I reckon it's one of the best mm. really it's no really, really I, I reckon they're great um, one of my favorite plants that I grow in my garden um, and along next to it it's looking a bit sad now unfortunately <laughs> from when I picked it this morning but um, 
people might be familiar with the licorice plant, Helichrysum petiolare, which is um, a grey, uh, kind of a nice kind of steely grey colour. Um, this is the cultivar Limelight. Um, which is a very, very bright green, um, mm. and it's one of the most useful plants for br- brightening up a dark spot yeah, in the absolutely. garden. Absolutely. It's a fabulous <laughs> colour, I think. It's planted right next to where the foxtail fern is in my garden, oh, okay. so they look quite nice together. Yeah. Um, and I really like the limelight cultivar. Uh, it's just, like I said, if you've got a, if you've got a dark spot that doesn't really get any direct sunlight at all, Mm. it'll grow in it quite happily Mm. and it'll just brighten it up no Mm. end. Um, One of the things that I like to do with plants that have this kind of yellowy um, green to them is... uh, Combine them with burgundy foliage, mm, actually. Mm. The lime green and the burgundy always go so well together. Yeah. Um, they just, it's, you know, it's kind of opposite ends of the colour wheel kind of situation. Mm. Yeah, they look really, really good. So I've got a whole lot of, um, I've got a whole lot of Ajuga australis planted around oh, where the, yeah, the helichrysum is, which was not looking terribly good at the moment, which, you know, often doesn't kind of in the middle of winter. <laughs> um, but... Those those two things that that kind of yellowy limey colour foliage and burgundy foliage. Oh together, yes, together fabulous. Look really good. Yeah, yeah. and they're, they're all my plants for today. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Um, we've had a query on the outside line. Marnie would like to know the best time to move a mandarin tree. Uh, my advice would be to wait until. It starts actively growing again in spring. Let the soil warm up a little bit. Absolutely. And then it should take off. Yep, yeah. yep. You don't want to be doing it now because the chances are you're going to put it into a, you know, you're going to put it into a hole. And if we get a whole lot of rain, it's just going to, it's going to sit there in the soil and, and be cold and yes. wet and it's yeah. not going to be And it's happy. not going to be happy yeah. at all. Yeah. Yep. So I would usually, I don't know, what time of year would you reckon, A.B.? Mm, maybe November? Yeah, maybe. Until yeah, we proper yeah, yeah. warm up? Yeah. 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 yeah, I would. Yeah. So in the when it's warm essentially, and when, when it's warm before it gets really too hot, mm. and try and try and take as big a, a root ball as you can, mm, definitely dig a trench around even yep. um, a yeah. little bit. Yep. Um, yeah, you before could get you, started now. You just, could get started just yep. just yeah. starting yeah. to trench it up a little bit, yep. and then then when you actually make sure you've got your where you're going to relocate it all mm. prepared ready, and I'd also get. Um, Hessian or something like that to mm. to wrap around your root ball as you lift it so that you can you can do the least damage possible because yep. they I think they most citrus are fairly shallow rooted aren't shallow. they surface yep. roots yeah. yep. so you really need to try and protect that root ball as mm. much as possible mm. in the shift yeah. absolutely yeah and and one like talking about trenching so maybe not even necessarily trenching at this point but one of the tricks that you can do is uh, you know maybe a foot away, a foot and a half away from the tree, depending on how large it is. You just put this, put the spade in, dig the spade right in, um, literally cutting through some roots, and mm. then you move, you know, a meter to the left or right, and do the same again. And essentially, so you're not cutting all the roots of the tree, but you, what you're doing is you're cutting some of the roots, and then it starts setting new roots in that area. So when you dig it up for good. Um, it's already starting to um, have those new roots that are sort of ready to go in, into the new soil. Yep. It's a good so little a, tip, actually, when you move trees. It is a good tip, yeah. 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 
If you give yourself if you give yourself a six months plan, you know, a six to twelve month plan to move a tree, mm. yeah, you've got pretty much a hundred percent chance of success yeah. most exactly. of the time. Yeah, yeah. depending yeah. of course on how big it is, and then mm. yeah, have your hole prepared beforehand. Yeah. And um, and and I also like to talk about you know consider the width more than the depth. A lot of people I've I've discovered um, dig really deep holes um, for very small pot essentially and mm-hmm. you know they might dig three times as deep thinking that that's the way to go and um, not worry about the width so much but essentially you want to plant at the same depth it either is in the ground now which that's is a little right. bit harder but or that it's in the pot yep um, because especially you know in areas where there's heavier soils uh, if you dig a really big hole, a really mm-hmm. deep hole, um, you're essentially just creating a bucket in the ground yeah. and water's going to come in and it's going to sit and it's going to rot those roots. Whereas That's if, right. If you worry about the horizontal uh, digging and cultivating that soil, breaking it up, it's going to give the plant chance to spread its roots. Exactly. You know, support the plant and, uh, yeah, m- much better way of doing it. Think horizontal rather than vertical. Yep. Mm-hmm. Good tip. Yeah, in terms of um, yep. potting up, I suppose. Yep, yeah. definitely. Okay, let's start on your plants, Me. baby. Excellent. <laughs> okay. It's your turn. <laughs> My turn. Goody. Well, I, if people can go to the Facebook page, you'll obviously see what I brought in. Um, one of the groups of plants which is uh, really sort of encapsulating me at the, at the um, nursery is Conostylus. Okay. Now, Conostylus, they are in the same family as kangaroo paws, mm. so the Hemideraceae family um, but they are low so they again they sort of have strappy foliage and essentially you can lump almost all the kind of stylus into a similar category and use them in the same way because they all are fairly similar but they have sort of nuanced differences and I'll, I'll go through some of them so there's, I don't know, around 30 or 40 um, conostylus species and um, they've all got certain things that attract them. They've got the strap-like leaves. Some have got bright green leaves. Some have got um, hirsute leaves, so they're green with little white hairs, which sort of gives them a bit of a stripy appearance. The one that I brought in is a conostylus setagira. Um, this particular cultivar is called Lemon Lights and that's got um, little hairs on it so it does give the leaf a bit of a sort of stripy appearance. Um, none of them get to about more than 30 centimetres tall, I, I would say, but they're sort of clumping plants. But clumping, s- yeah. Slowly yeah. clumping yeah. plants. So they will spread over a period of time. Absolutely fantastic uh, pot plants. Mm-hmm. Absolutely stunning. You know, you can have them up on a table on your back deck or whatever, mm. and they really add a pop of colour. All of them have got yellow flowers. Um, some of the, most of them have got sort of like clusters of flowers on the one stem, and then they, each of those, they sort of um, close, and um, eventually they'll open up in the little clusters. But um, the one, another one that I brought in called Bright Spark, which is a Baileyana, um, it's got bright green leaves and it's the flowers are individual so they're not in mm. clusters like most of the other kind of stylus. You can really see with that one how it's in the kangaroo paw family. Oh, actually. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. And so this particular one, the Baileyana Bright Spark, the, the flowers are, the stalks are so small that they're actually the flowers that sit within the foliage. Mm. So but because they're bright, bright yellow, it's extremely noticeable. So um, absolutely gorgeous group of plants and I don't them, but I really um, hope that other people <laughs> will. They would go well at your place, oh, actually. They, I they would, yeah. actually, in pots. I want to start growing They're them in the pots. And yeah, they are tough. Mm. And, you know, I see them at the nursery, you know, week in, week out, and yep. they just. 
they seem to be super tough, but they do like very similar conditions to kangaroo paws. So they come, uh, all species come from the southwest of West Australia. And um, as East Coast gardeners, we all mm. we want to grow is West Coast mm. plants. I think it's very it's annoying. crazy, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> these are one that'll actually grow. Yeah. Oh, the, and these will grow. <laughs> so well, these, yeah. if you don't want to grow them in a pot, mm. um, they are fabulous in rockeries. Mm. Yep. Any sunny spot, they really need the sun. Um, they like that well-drained soil. If you don't, you know, if you've got a clay-based soil, you can still have well-drained. People mm. sometimes think, oh, clay, it doesn't drain mm. well, but that's not the case at all. You can mound up your soil and create that really good drainage. Um, um, they will cope with moderate frosts, mm-hmm. so they're not, you're not going to kill them overnight with, with um, a frost. I, I suppose maybe for the first winter, if you've got them in the ground, you might want to give them a bit of protection if there's no sort of shrubbery around yep. them. Yep. Um, but, yeah, so there's the Baleana, there's the Setagera. We've got a new one in at the nursery, Porciflora, um, and I've put a photo oh. up of that one as well, and it's got really intriguing foliage. Mm. It's bright, bright green and sort of grass-like but almost aloe-like. It's almost like okay. really fine aloe leaves, so yeah, right. quite, quite different to the others. Um, and then, of course, there's candicans, um, kind of Silas candicans, which has got beautiful grey foliage, which, of course, looks absolutely terrific with the, with the clusters of yellow flowers. Mm. Next to it. So all of the foliage is sort of same, same, but different in a way. You know, mm. it's either bright green or lightish grey or darker grey. They look like a, a substantial grass clump or something, don't they? They've got, they that, do. they've got that appearance about them. Yeah, mm. they do. And they spread via rhizome, so they mm. will eventually clump up, but they'll, they'll take their time to do so. But really good plant for a sunny spot or, yeah, as I've I said. I've seen them used extensively in coastal gardens and they go always go really I'll well bet, in coastal yeah, locations. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Absolutely. Get a bit of a that sandy soil. Yeah, exactly. Well. That's the good yeah. drainage. Yeah, yep. sunny location. So yep. yeah, I mean, there's 40 species, but there's you know probably maybe 10 that are being seriously cultivated, mm. and uh, such such a I think it's a little bit underused still. So it's I agree. A mm. bit of a novelty plant, but <coughs> certainly a plant that um, yeah is it, you're not going to waste your money buying it. Essentially, it's not one mm. of those drop dead fuss pot plants. It's yep. a good plant for a small space as well. Oh. Talk about city gardens wanting yep. to go native. Then yep. That that plant has got to be one of the best going, I reckon. Well, it'd be yeah. perfect in a courtyard garden. It would, absolutely. Yeah. Well, Mum's yeah, got a, a small courtyard garden, and I potted her one up um, into a, into a lime green pot. She wanted a lime green pot, and I, at first I was like, oh, it's going to look terrific, but it <laughs> actually does look terrific. So, and that it's going great guns. So, okay. Yeah, mm. it's fab- and, and that was a really shallow pot. You know, it's. Okay. I mean, these pots are probably what. Um, 25, 20, 25 centimetres tall. And, and that's essentially all you need. You could just keep it in that side, that depth pot, but go slightly, go slightly wider, wider to give it room yep. to move. Go yep. for a saucer. Go, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 that yeah. would look great. Or even a, bu- a bulb pot, mm. that, that yep. sort of shallowness would, yep. would work. But yeah, really terrific group, group of plants. Excellent. Yes. Brilliant. Okay, we've got time to uh, tackle a couple more. What? We're going to get to another one of my plants. I don't usually get time to talk about any of my plants. I know, plants. Before I know. You go into th- I'm going to say I have a love-hate relationship with this plant. <laughs> well, when I finish, James, it's just going to be a love relationship. <laughs> All right. All right, so I am talking. Like, Okay, so a bit of a common plant now. Uh-huh. This is our lovely Hardenberger. And the purple one. The purple one, yes. Um, and a climbing plant or or a scrambling plant. I've, yep. I've used 
uh, yes, I, I brought in the happy wanderer. Um, so I've used it both. I've used it cl- as a climbing plant to cover our chook shed, mm-hmm. and I've used it as a ground cover plant. So you can use it either or. They scramble nicely over rocks and logs that are that are um, in the garden. They do look good as a ground cover. I do, oh, yeah. They're fantastic mm. as a ground cover and terrific uh, habitat for frogs and lizards mm. and, you know, use it to scurry underneath. Uh, there's only three species of Hardenberger, uh, which I didn't know. I thought there might be more. So mm. there's... Um, the Com- Comptoniana. Comptoniana, which is a WA species. Is, so, yeah. yeah, neither did I. So it <coughs> is um, per... Brevidens, P-E-R-B-R-E-V-I-D-E-N-S, and that's a Queensland one. So I'm not even sure if it is cultivated at all. Maybe it is cultivated up in Queensland and they've Mm -hmm. got a few plants up there. But, Mm. yeah, essentially down here we use the Comptoniana and, of course, the Violaceae. Yes. So Comptoniana, extremely vigorous. I mean, they're all, again, similar to the Conostylus, sort of same, same, but different. Mm. Um, Almost eucalypt-like leaves, those kind of uh, longish... um, yeah, what would you call that? Um, come on. Well, where's Stephen when you need him? <laughs> <laughs> Just almost like um, arrowhead-shaped leaves, deep green, um, followed by the beautiful sprays of pea um, purple flowers, essentially, this one. Um, so the violacea also comes in the white. So there's yep. an Edna Walling white, and there's a white and purple. The one I've brought in here is the Happy Wanderer. It's one that's been grown for a long, 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 long time and quite vigorous. Like the Comptoniana is extremely vigorous, so you want to train it well and you want to give it a really good support structure if you're Mm. growing it vertically. Uh, they like, um, that, you know, they're fine with a variety of different soil types and, you know, acidity and alkalinity um, and do well. I mean, they flower more in the sun, but they certainly are a plant w- which will go in semi-shade as well. But the thing about this, and I suppose all other climbers, if you are training them up a fence, it's really a good tip in the, the first couple of years, essentially, to set the structure of the horizontal yep. laterals yep. and take <laughs> it into the fence. Because as, I mean, you can drive around any suburb and you will see a hardened burger that's climbed quickly up to the top of the fence and it just sits on the top like a big purple lump. Yep. Muffin top. A muffin. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Thank you, James. But if you, so I actually practice what I preached and um, I trained mine horizontally for yep. the first couple of years. You get out there in the evening with a glass of wine and uh, yeah, you say you're, doing, yeah. Yeah, you're yep. hard at work gardening and you, you train them through whatever support structure that you've got and uh, then, yeah. Growing any plant well takes a little bit of intervention, I reckon. I know, but and it's so much this, fun, isn't it? This, this as well as several other climbers that training them along the horizontal tip, it's it's yeah. not so much a tip as an essential it is an in essential, growing yeah, it well. Because yeah, yeah. otherwise you do go and get the, the, the muffin top and you get no you get no coverage at all. You know, say you're trying to cover a fence with it or something like yeah. that. Once it gets to that top section... It's all over. That's it. You're yeah. done. Yeah. It's all over. You yeah. get, you've got to start again, basically. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah training the laterals, it, it's, and, and it makes such a huge difference. So now we've got the entire bottom part of the shed mm. is covered and the little birds love it they nest in there and mm. you know we've got the eastern spinebills which so i think they live in there and then they hop down onto the corea that's below and feast okay. the corea then yeah, nice. back up into the hardened burger so oh they've it, got yeah, it made they have got it made they've got a little bird bath for them it's yeah, <laughs> sort of haven it really is okay we must get to a couple of callers next and i'm going to go first to uh cameron out in adelaide good morning cameron morning good to hear um, from you again uh, thank you. 
Uh, I was just interested in how each of you got started in your careers in horticulture and, and yeah, what, what led to what you're doing now. Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> how long have you got, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't have much time left, so we might have to... No, uh, yeah. Yeah. Come three, on, three hours well, later. Okay, oh, look, oh, I don't know. I don't want to get too kind of David Copperfield about it, but when I was a kid, I didn't, I didn't really have much of an interest in gardening or plants at all. It was only something I discovered a bit later in life, kind of late teens, early 20s, um, when I moved to Melbourne from Brisbane and I spent a year living here before I went back to study. I was, a, I was studying psychology at the time, a psychology degree. And after living here for a year and kind of indulging a whole lot of um, my creative side and making sure I liked Melbourne as a city before I went back and did my study, I did a lot of gardening um, as part of that and ended up really loving it and thought, this is great, you know, this is, this is fantastic that I've discovered this, it's something to get a lot out of. So I went back to study psychology um, down here. I lasted one semester <laughs> before I just went, no, I can't do this anymore. So I went and enrolled at Burnley College in Richmond and got my degree in horticulture um, and, yeah, I've worked in lots of different areas of horticulture ever since. Um, when I finished my study, I went and worked for a friend who ran a bushland management company, um, working with um, indigenous plants of the Melbourne region and working kind of all over the northern and eastern suburbs in the Yarra Valley, learning a lot about local plants. Um, I, I went to work for him and it was just going to be a year's job because I didn't know what, else, what direction I wanted to take that job in, the, the degree in. Um, ended up loving it, ended up staying for six years. Um, and then after that, I kind of got into the media and did a bit of writing. I started working for Gardening Australia as a researcher, writing the content for the show, which is how I met AB, actually. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where our careers crossed. And um, now I'm running my own gardening business and, yeah, really loving it. Um, I, I, I got into horticulture to get my hands dirty, and I'm certainly doing that now. <laughs> so there we go. That's <laughs> oh, really interesting. Yeah, yeah. Really okay, AB. And, and in terms of uh, me, I uh, well, I actually had both my... Uh, Grandmothers, my paternal and maternal, paternal and maternal grandmothers were into gardening, so I was involved in gardening from a quite a young age, and uh, but didn't think of it in terms of a career. So that that was in England and South Africa, and then I came out here and eventually uh, studied writing. And um, I, I was just finishing my writing degree and I was standing in the queue waiting to put some form work in in the foyer and I was going through all the other courses that they had at the college and I was like, oh, look at that, horticulture. I love gardening. I didn't even know you could study horticulture. So I came into studying it later in life and pretty much haven't looked back since and now really like to combine the, the writing side of it as well as the horticulture side of it and, yeah, and found a real um, love, absolute love. In fact, since I arrived here in 1983, I just fell in love with native plants. So that's sort of, and as James was saying, yeah, moved a, bit, a little bit into the media, write a bit for Gardening Australia and, yeah, worked for the TV show for five years and, and here we are. So, the, well, yeah, a yeah. bit, bit of a journey for, for, I suppose, same as anyone. Just and, of course, you've, you've now published two books. Published a couple of oh, books. Oh, three yeah. books, I think. Three, yeah, <laughs> yes. two and a half, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so, and, yeah, that, um, that's the side of it I really love. I really love sharing the knowledge and, and getting feedback from people. Yeah, thanks for that. Thank um, you. Just quickly, any advice you'd have for someone who's interested in pursuing a career in horticulture, like how they would go about, um, yeah, I guess, 
taking the first step or yeah look or i think could... i think one of the best things to do um is to look for a course that has a very big practical component in it um and yeah. I guess it's a bit of advice that I would give, given my experience. Um, I, I enrolled at kind of Victoria's best-known school of horticulture, um, which at the time was and still is um, under the auspices of Melbourne University. Um, but it used to be it used to be like a TAFE-level um, system back in its heyday. And I spent four years studying horticulture, and I did not put one plant in the ground mm. as part of a prac in that in that degree um, mm. and if I had my time again I would have enrolled in something definitely at a TAFE level that mm. had a big hands-on component um, because you can read as many books about gardening as you want but until you actually do it yep. and until you start handling plants yep. um, until you start gardening properly um, you you can read as many books as you want but you'll never learn as much as when you're actually doing the practical stuff. Mm. Yeah. I have, yeah I have to agree with that and I, yep. I actually did a couple of diplomas I did a a diploma in production, landscaping, and, and a diploma in um, sort of design and whatnot. And I would agree with James. Like, uh, ours was pretty hands-on and practical and, yeah, but also a strong theory component. Uh, so I learned from both of those. And the other thing I would say what is terrific is hop online and search on horticulture jobs and just yep. go through and you'll start to get a sense, you know, there's, um, you know, tree jobs mm. and arboriculture <laughs> jobs and um, bushland jobs and you'll get a sense mm. of what sort of work is out there for you and what you might want to specialise in. Mm. And people who run those kind of gardening businesses, they're often looking for people, you know, they're looking for hands to come along yep. and help them out. That's right. And, and if you go along and you're a good worker and you're also interested and you're asking questions, then, you know, that's a really good start as well because you're going to be working with someone who's got a bit of knowledge about them. And there's one thing people that are into gardening love, it's talking gardening. Yep. So, you know, if you go to work for someone <laughs> yeah. and you ask them questions, they're going to love you. And yeah. even if you do almost like a, a work placement program, you're like you're upfront with them and say, look, I'm just interested in this side of gardening because I could I come and work with you even for one day for free mm. um, go along and see what it's all about and, and and then move on to another part of horticulture and see what what that's all about and then of course there's a lot of sort of theoretical horticulture jobs and and media horticulture jobs but essentially they're, they're all about the practical side of it as well but yeah. I mean there really are there's there's so many areas that you could move into cool thanks, thanks for that it's really good advice go on you Cameron good luck appreciate it Thank you. Bye. Bye. <coughs> and we'll also go to Robert, who's in Mitcham. Good morning, Robert. Yes, good morning, all. It's been a very interesting show this morning. Oh, and, thank uh, you. Things are going along very well, and I think the only relationship my call has is that at the back of my workshop, I've got a lovely Hardenberger that's about to burst into flower. Oh, great. Nice. Yes, it's so good at this time of year, especially when the acacias start popping as well, having the yellow and purple together. Mm. Yes, Okay. <coughs> The, the, the reason for the call is because of some of the interesting places that you, uh, communities you visit. I've got an old wood lathe in there, in that shed that's down the back there. It's similar to one that's up in uh, Sovereign Hill, the very old, previously steam-driven one. It's on about a six-foot bed. It's old cast iron. If any of the communities are interested in it, I'll be happy to talk to them. Wow. That, that's, uh, yeah, so you, you're obviously selling that, Robert? Well, if, if they're interesting enough, they can have it. Oh, right. <laughs> that, that's terrific. And large, is it? Does they need a bit of machinery to move it or uh, just a trailer? You certainly need a, uh, uh, a trailer to, uh, uh, to move it along. It's, uh, uh, it's on a six-foot bed at the moment, a big, heavy wooden bed. Mm. 
Uh, it's, it's cast iron centered uh, tapered bronze bearings and a couple of face plates. Uh, but as I said, the only time I've ever seen one like it was uh, up at Sovereign Hill. Yeah, right. Oh, that's that's really generous of yeah, you, Robert. Is, and absolutely. have you given your number to Doug? I haven't. No. You okay. haven't. So maybe if yeah, if you go back, not now. If, if, if you if give you it just, to him, if you just hold on, yeah. um, I'll get Doug to uh, to pick up and uh, and take a contact details from you. Okay. Right. Yeah, it's very generous. So so yeah. just just hold on. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, Robert. <laughs> Well, wow, that is that's terrific, and yeah. I actually think I know someone who might want yeah, that. Okay. Yes, yeah. yes, yes. So, uh, yeah. Oh, wow. That that's terrific, and that's fantastic. Be a value, very valuable piece of equipment. I oh, would imagine. absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Great. All right. I think we've got a plant we haven't talked about yet. We have. Um, this is um, one of the grevilleas. It's uh, local plant to me. It's a grevillea rose marinifolia. Uh, as the name suggests, it has uh, rosemary-like foliage. I wouldn't say it's exactly the same. It's um, sort of a semi-prickly plant. Um, the cultivar that I've got is Scarlet Sprite and um, this particular one, is, like if you're going to plant a rosemary folia, this is, this is one which is really quite floriferous, um, has tiny little uh, grevillea flowers, red flowers and what you know, one of the things that I love about this plant, apart from the fact that it's actually a grevillea that's indigenous to my area, which is pretty much which the is o- a bonus. <laughs> yeah, it's the only grevillea indigenous <laughs> to my area. Um, so I look at it with love already. Um, it's it's one of these plants which is fabulous for little birds. It it flowers as we can see. It's coming into flower now, and some some of the flowers are starting to pop. But you can see it flowers the entire way down the stem. So mm. when this shrub is you know it gets to about uh, two meters by two meters, um, extremely dense, and it essentially gives the little birds a place to feed safely. So they can actually be inside the plant feeding in safety um, yep. without noisy miners and New Holland honey eaters and, mm. and whatnot coming in and hassling them. Um, the thing about grevilleas, we've got those really beautiful, large-flowered species of grevilleas, which everyone loves to have in the garden because they really bring those huge masses of colour. Mm-hmm. And then we've got the, the species that have got the smaller flowers. And mm. for me, it's about having you know, if you want to have both in the garden, have both. I wouldn't have both in the garden because I do have to plant only indigenous plants. And, um, you know, but the, those big flowered ones, the flowers uh, flower on the ends of the stems. Yep. And essentially they attract, you know, the, the larger honey-eating birds, which, as we know, uh, can be pretty aggressive and, and, right. and protect their nectar source. Yep. And they certainly chase away the little birds. So mm. the little birds could feed on them, but essentially they don't get a look in with, with the, the larger honey-eaters. So um, a lot... I, always suggest that people are trying to create a bit of a habitat area in the garden to you know plant for both yes you exactly know, it's not to say you can't have the large flowered amazing varieties but the smaller flowering varieties are incredible in themselves and even though the flowers are smaller there's more of them yeah so you get a lot of color from a small plant so yeah this particular one grevillea rose marinifolia scarlet sprite Mm. So, yeah, about two by two um, can certainly cope with heavy soils. Mm-hmm. Um, given where I am, we've got really heavy clay soils. and it's It would have been once terrific. quite widely distributed across Melbourne, it, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. And, yes. and, well, and across eastern, yep. east, eastern Australia, essentially. Mm. So, yeah, it's one, one, of, one of the goodies. 
And readily available, eh, Bea? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, even rosemary folia itself, which can tend, the the straight species, which can tend to be uh, a bit bigger than the scarlet sprite. The scarlet sprite's a bit more compact, I suppose. Yes, it is. um, A lot of people like the the more compact plants. Um, But, yeah, readily available at at most nurseries, I'd say. Great. Mm. Yeah. So, really good plant. Yes. So we're all out of plants. What are we going to do now? <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to, I don't know, talk about, what can we talk about? If, if we could go back to Anne's thing with her pomegranate, oh, when yes. she was mentioning her citrus and she said that she had a lot of gall wasps, so she was yes. forever cutting, yes. Um, yes. cutting branches off her citrus. Um, that prompted me at the time and it fell out of my brain, but it's back now. Um, I've, been, I've been using a product for the past 12 months um, that I've been trialling that I'd heard about as a... It acts as like a like a um, like a deterrent for for gall wasp. Okay. Um, and it was a product originally developed um, for um, orchard culture um, to stave off sunburn. And it's essentially a like a very very fine um, clay product. It's based on a cowlin clay that you would find in beauty products and things. So okay. You, you mix it up in a spray and you spray it on the plant, and it looks like you've spray painted your plant white. <laughs> um, but <clears throat> the flip side of that is that it makes it a very very unattractive plant to gall wasps to land on and lay their eggs on. Right. So I hit on this product after the first year of trying to grow um, citrus in my new garden. Yep. Um, and after my first year, I had to cut off every bit of new growth because it was just riddled with gall wasp. And yep. it broke my heart and I thought, well, if that's the case, maybe I should just give up on the idea of growing citrus. But it's one of those things that, you know, I like to grow what we like to cook with and we use exactly. a lot of citrus. Yep. So I thought, let's have another crack at it. So <clears throat> I did a bit of research and found this product. It's called Surround. And the only place that I could find it near me was actually um, an ag supply store in the Yarra Valley in Yarra Glen. Okay. Um, because it's, it is more of that kind of agricultural product. It's not mm-hmm. something you're yeah. going to find in city areas. Hoogies. 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 Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I had to buy 12 kilos of it, so I've probably got about <laughs> 10 years' supply of it. Probably James 20 is selling years it. Supply you can sell it on. <laughs> <laughs> I think a whole street should club together and, it does, and share yeah, it. And it does, it does look yeah. a bit more like a, one of an illicit substance that you would put up your nose as well. So you could get a bit, you know, yeah, get a bit, Don't do it, get a bit mafia about it. At least you'd never but, have um, gore wasps. But, it, but look, it is food grade, so you could do that with it and it wouldn't cause you any harm. But, um, <laughs> but you want to. <laughs> how, how much is it? Is it smothering the leaves? Because is that going to stop it photosynthesizing? That's a great question because, no, it doesn't. Um, the, the clay particles are so fine and the way that it's sprayed on, sprayed on the plant, it looks like it totally covers it and it looks like it would peg back photosynthesis. Yep. But that's one of the reasons why it's used so much in orchard culture is because it cuts down 100% on the possibility of sunburn. Right. But it also allows photosynthesis to keep happening. Wow. Um, so it keeps out the ultraviolet, the, the, not, not ultraviolet light, but the, 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 the wavelength of light that makes plant tissues heat up but it lets through the light that plants use for photosynthesis. Okay. Um, so the other flip side of it, apart from being a really good deterrent for gall wasp, um, is that even when you get into that really high summer period in Melbourne where it's really, really hot, and like citrus shut down in the winter because it's too cold, they also stop growing when it gets really, really hot in, in summer. Mm. Um, last year, both of my citrus grew through the hot period because I kept applying. And, it's, and it is the kind of product for it to work, to keep gall wasp at bay. You do need to keep applying it. Yep. Um, 
after rain, essentially, yes, definitely. Um, but any bit of new growth that emerges on the plant at any time, really, you've got to go and you've got to reapply it because okay. it's that new growth that's particularly susceptible to yep. gall wasp laying its eggs on. Um, early in the season, I find as well, so from mid-spring to kind of mid-summer is when gall wasp is most active. Um, and definitely being very, very persistent with applying it throughout that time. Mm. I was applying it from uh, maybe maybe once every two weeks or so um, throughout that time, and I even used it in a couple of client gardens who had massive problems with gall wasp, and it has reduced the incidence of it in my garden by 99%. Really? In my client's garden, it's reduced the incidence of gall wasp by... 85, 90%. And it's only okay. because I'm not going to those clients as regularly to as really I usually spray, would. Yep. Um, but has massively, massively cut down on on the incidence of gall wasp. Right. Yeah. Yep. And it, it's one of those things that because my citrus are newly planted, um, you know, they're essentially only a year old because the first year they were in the ground, I had to cut everything off anyway. Mm, yep. So all the growth that's on them now has only happened in the last um, in the last six to nine months, essentially. Um and once they get to a stage where they're bigger, <clears throat> I'll only have to apply it. Excuse me, <clears throat> I'll only have to apply it to the new growth as it's emerging. It's not something I'm going to have to cover the whole tree in because once you get to that woody stage, the gall wasps don't. The, yep. They don't really go and lay their yep. eggs on it. And if yep. they do, it turns out as a little bubble that you can just scrape off. Yep. Anyway, without having to cut the whole branch off. But yeah, it's called surround, and it's registered for organic use. It's just a clay, basically. It's mm-hmm. a it's a okay. very super fine clay that you mix up in a spray bottle and you spray it on and it goes on very quickly. It's very easy and it's extremely effective. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting. I went to one of the presentations I gave was for the City of Whitehorse Sustainability Week. They had a week of an incredible um, different talks. And on the same day as me was a guy called Duncan Cocking from a company called Leaf, Root and Fruit. And essentially it's an organisation that helps uh, people set up Food forests, absolutely terrific idea, and really um, based on the of, on the model of forests out in, out in the wild. Um, but these are all edible mm. edible plants, and uh, they he was saying that they're actually experimenting with not doing anything. Um, with gall wasp because in Melbourne we're following the sort of the, the model of eradication and prevention mm. of the of Queensland and New South Wales <coughs> where in actual fact it has a bit of a different life cycle down here and, and is active at, at different times and whatnot. So they're experimenting with some plants by not doing anything with them mm. and um, yeah they, they actually think they're having a bit of success. So you know could that's something that I intend to hop onto their website and, and just okay. follow up up their, their research, what they're doing there. So, so by doing nothing, what what is the outcome oh, of doing I, I nothing? I can't remember, but it, it was it was saying something about yeah the the, the life cycle was yeah, okay. different, um, and and we're sort of we're we're treating it in the same way that Queensland and New South Wales treat it. When in actual fact, um, we should be treating it if we are treating it treated at different times. Or I, ca- yeah, okay. I can't actually remember, but it, I, you just prompted me then yeah, right. to that was something that I'll was to look was as quite well. Let me treat yeah. by that as well. Yeah, so that's leaf, root, and fruit. <laughs> mm. um, okay. Yeah, sort of. A, a fruit forest, uh, food forest mm. garden, garden. Well, I think in New South Wales it's actually compulsory to 
cut off your gourd. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yes. Yeah, yes, I, it is. I didn't know that. Well, I don't know if they have inspectors going round, but... I would um, love that job. I think... <laughs> 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 you just want to go around and talk to other gardeners. Very exaggerous. <laughs> <laughs> you can put a little cap on, James. <laughs> but but if, wasp, if wasp. people do have um, trees that are heavily infected, I should oh. remind listeners that the wasp usually emerges any time from August, between August and October. Yeah. So really, <laughs> now is the time... To, to prune out, prune out to cut off those um, those galls before they the yep. wasps emerge. Definitely, definitely, yep. so perfect time to be doing it right absolutely. now. Absolutely, yeah, yep, for yep. sure. Uh, we have only uh, got gosh, just under four minutes. If there's anything else you think you, we should be mentioning quickly oh, for listeners, at yeah. what to do this time of the year in the garden? Well. I'm not so much what to do this time in the garden, but as I was talking about earlier, I've got my cousin here from South Africa, and we've been doing a lot of touristy things. Okay. And one of the things that we did, we went down, had a little trip down to Phillip Island. Oh, yeah. And, you know, they've got the um, the Phillip Island Nature Parks, and essentially... They're a great organisation. They are yeah. fantastic. You know, we went to the Koala Conservation Centre, um, which has this incredible woodland walk, and you can see, I mean, the koalas are essentially out in the wild, but they um, bring um, branches down low so that they they come down lower to feed, so you can see them. So we saw a lot of koalas sort of up close and personal yesterday, which was terrific, but they're all essentially wild koalas. Um, and we, d- we did the penguin parade, and, and, and that was all terrific. You know, it's such an incredible story, that with the Summerlands Bay, how essentially it was a, a buyback um, in the 80s, in the mid-80s. Um, Joan Kerner, who was the environment minister at the time, um, someone who actually cared about the environment, apparently. Yeah, um, unlike she, our current environment. Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. She um, basically got the government on side, and they had this buyback for the whole southwestern tip of Port, uh, of Phillip Island, which mm. is essentially mm. is the sort of you know it's shaped like a dolphin. It's essentially the dolphin nose, and they bought back the whole area. They um, yeah, that, and they got rid of all of the houses, which of course was extremely controversial <laughs> and, and very difficult, I would imagine, for the residents who were living there at the time. Um, but essentially, over a period of, I think it was about 20 years, uh, they purchased all the properties, either pulled them down or removed them, and it's essentially just this incredible conservation area now. And, you know, they were saying that the, these little penguins, or the fairy penguins, they were going to become extinct on Phillip Island, and um, now they're just back in really good numbers and mm. you can drive drive through this area. It's an absolutely beautiful area. There's Cape Barren geese everywhere. We saw yeah. the Cape Barren they geese. Are yeah, just they're fabulous. They're insane. How yeah. they are not close to extinction is one of the I great know. mysteries because they're so docile and the way they wander on the road and you stop yes. your car in front of them and they just look at you as if to go, what? Yeah, what? get <laughs> out of <laughs> my domain. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so no, that, it, I can't speak highly enough of the, the nature, nature parks down there. Yeah, and, and to have the foresight to do that. Absolutely. It's, it's a world first. Yes. To actually reclaim an entire yeah, suburb, thing. essentially, is a world first. And, yeah. and it's such a good if model. If you're going to compulsory acquire land to build a railway, why not do it to return oh, it back to exactly. nature? exactly. You know, it's a better reason. Exactly. It's a much better reason. Yeah. 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 And so the good penguins thing. have returned en masse, and you can go down there and you can actually, yeah, obviously see them waddling out of the beach. They're so cute. And then you, there's boardwalks all through the area, <laughs> um, which is only open for, until a certain time at night. And you can be really close and see them having having a chat with each other and having fights and <laughs> doing their loving and all And it's sorts been so successful that there are actually other spots on the island where penguin colonies are starting to set themselves up on other points around the island. I'm not going to say really? any of them. Yeah, yeah but yeah. I know of several spots where okay. there are kind of fledgling colonies of new new fairy penguins. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful. So it's a very good success story. Yeah, that is. is brilliant. Yeah.
Okay, well, we have run out of time for yet another week. Um, a big thank you to uh, Doug and Liz, who've been handling all the phone calls this morning. A big thank you, of course, to the team of AB and James. <laughs> Good to see you both in the studio again. We will be back, of course, uh, next Sunday morning at 7.30. So until then, bye for now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.